afternoon and or good evening and welcome to Pulp Today, uh, episode two. Today we're going to talk about the Maltese Falcon, Dashiell Hammett, and the Flitcraft story. Dashiell Hammett was the real thing, was an actual private detective, wrote uh, five novels, a lot of short stories. Five novels doesn't seem like a lot, but four of them are classics of the genre, imitated by everyone. Today we're going to talk about the Maltese Falcon, which was written in 1930 made into three movies, the third of which is the one you've seen with Humphrey Bogart. It's a great adaptation. It hews very closely the novel, but it leaves out one amazing thing, one incredible section of the book, uh, which I have been obsessed with since the first time I read it. And I'm going to read it to you. And then we'll talk a little bit more about it. It comes out of nowhere in Chapter 7, a title, uh, chapter called G in the Air. This is my father's collected Dashiell Hammett edition in the kind of shape you might imagine it would be in. So Spade and Bridget O'Shaughnessy, our detective hero and our femme fatale, are waiting for Joel Cairo to show up. And out of nowhere, he launches into a story. And she listens. A man named Flitcraft had left his real estate office in Tacoma to go to luncheon one day and he never returned. He did not keep an engagement to play golf after four that afternoon, though he had taken the initiative in making the engagement less than half an hour before he went out to lunch. His wife and children never saw him again. His wife and he were supposed to be on the best of terms. He had two children, boys, one five, the other three. He owned his house in a Tacoma suburb, a new Packard, and the rest of the appurtenances of successful American living. Flitcraft had inherited $70,000 from his father, and with his success in real estate was worth something in the neighborhood of $200,000 at the time he disappeared. His affairs were in order, though there were enough loose ends to indicate that he had not been setting them in order preparatory to vanishing. A deal that would have brought him an attractive profit, for instance, was to have been concluded the day after the one on which he disappeared. There was nothing to suggest that he had more than 50 or $60 in his immediate possession at the time of his going. His habits for months past could be encountered for too thoroughly to justify any suspicion of secret vices or even another woman in his life, though either was barely possible. He went like that, Spade said, like a fist when you open your hand. When he had reached this point in his story, the telephone bell rang. Hello, Spade said into the instrument. Mr. Cairo, this is Spade. Can you come up to my place, Post Street, now? Yes, I think it is. He looked at the girl, pursed his lips, then said rapidly, Miss O'Shaughnessy is here and she wants to see you. Bridget O'Shaughnessy frowned and stirred in her chair, but did not say anything. Spade put down the telephone and told her, I'll be up in a few minutes. Well, that was 19, 1922. In 1927, I was with one of the big detective agencies in Seattle. Mrs. Flitcraft came in and told us somebody had seen a man in Spokane who looked a lot like her husband. I went over there. It was Flitcraft, all right. He had been living in Spokane for a couple of years as Charles, that was his first name, Pierce. He had an automobile business that was netting him twenty or 25000 a year, a wife, a baby son, owned his home in a Spokane suburb, and usually got away to play golf after four in the afternoon during the season. Spade had not been told very definitively what to do when he found Flitcraft. They talked in Spade's room at the Davenport. Flitcraft had no feeling of guilt. 
He had left his first family well provided for, and what he had done seemed to him perfectly reasonable. The only thing that bothered him was a doubt that he could make that reasonableness clear to Spade. He had never told anybody his story before, and thus had not had to attempt to make its reasonableness explicit. He tried now. I got it all right, Spade told Bridget O'Shaughnessy, but Mrs. Flitcraft never did. She thought it was silly. Maybe it was. Anyway, it came out all right. She didn't want any scandal, and after the trick he had played on her, the way she looked at it, she didn't want him. So they were divorced on the quiet, and everything was swell all around. Here's what happened to him. Going to lunch, he had passed an office building that was being put up, just a skeleton. A beam or something fell eight to ten stories down and smacked the sidewalk alongside him. It brushed pretty close to him, but didn't touch him, though a piece of the sidewalk had chipped off and flew up and hit his cheek. It only took a piece of skin off, but he still had the scar when I saw him. He rubbed it with his finger, well, affectionately, when he told me about it. He was scared stiff, of course, he said, but he was more shocked than really frightened. He felt like somebody had taken the lid off life and let him look at the works. Flitcraft had been a good citizen and a good husband and father, not by any outer compulsion, but simply because he was a man who was most comfortable in step with his surroundings. He had been raised that way. The people he knew were like that. The life he knew was a clean, orderly, sane, responsible affair. Now a falling beam had shown him that life was fundamentally none of those things. He, the good citizen, husband, father, could be wiped out between office and restaurant by the accident of a falling beam. He knew then that men died at haphazard like that and lived only while blind chance spared them. It was not primarily the injustice of it that disturbed him. He accepted that after the first shock. What disturbed him was the discovery that insensibly ordering his affairs, he had got out of step, not into step, with life. He said he knew before he had gone 20 feet from the fallen beam that he would never know peace again until he had adjusted himself to this new glimpse of life. By the time he had eaten his lunch, he had found his means of adjustment. Life could be ended for him at random by a falling beam. He would change his life at random by simply going away. He loved his family, he said, as much as he supposed was usual. But he knew he was leaving them adequately provided for, and his love for them was not of the sort that would make their absence painful. He went to Seattle that afternoon, Spade said and from there by boat to San Francisco. For a couple of years, he wandered around and then drifted back to the Northwest and settled in Spokane and got married. His second wife didn't look like the first, but they were more alike than they were different. You know, the kind of woman that play fair games of golf and bridge and like new salad recipes. He wasn't sorry for what he had done. It seemed reasonable enough to him. I don't think he even knew he had settled back naturally into the same groove he had jumped out of in Tacoma. That was the part of it I always liked. He adjusted himself to falling beams, and then no more of them fell, and he adjusted himself to them not falling. How perfectly fascinating, Bridget O'Shaughnessy said. Dashiell Hammett, Inventing Existentialism in 1930. Here's to you, Dashiell. The French don't come up with the word existentialism until 1945. Hmm. And Albert Camus does not identify the absurdity of modern life, of human existence, until uh, his essay, The Myth of Sisyphus, in 1942. I think it's fascinating uh, 
it's reflected later in the French love of film noir that this view of human existence, this idea of how much we don't control our fate and what the hell can we do about that and how do we live our lives reacting to that first appears in this detective novel from 1930. And yes, it's not like those kind of matters had never shown up in a book before. But Dashiell Hammett pauses a great popular entertainment to tell a little parable, a little fable, about how the world works and how the universe works and how we all manage to get through the day. So, here's to you, Dashiell, and here's to us all getting through the day and avoiding falling beams. Avoid those falling beams, huh? For more information, visit PendantAudio.com. Thanks for listening.